All right, we're going to dive right in again. Uh, lots of ground to cover, as always, in this series through the book of Acts. Uh, we started this series uh, 15 weeks ago now uh, by uh, going through chapter by chapter, week by week, through the entire book of Acts for most of 2020. It's a 28-chapter book, meaning we are going to spend 28 weeks talking about the early church and how they did church and the lessons that we can learn from the first century church that we can put into practice in the 21st century. And tonight's lesson is so incredibly important. Uh, the, the lesson that we're going to learn tonight about unity is just vitally important. So uh, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Acts 15. We are in a series called Unleashed. If you haven't been here before, if you haven't been here in a while, uh, the series is called Unleashed. And uh, this series, like I said, is all about the book of Acts. Um, and it is uh, a series about um, doing church the way that God wants us to do church. So, uh, like I said, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 15. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab your phone, and there are Bible apps available on your phone, uh, such as uh, Uversion or Bible Gateway. Um, also, uh, the, the best way to follow along is through the GFCC app. Uh, if you haven't gotten the app yet, go to your app store and search for GFCC. Uh, you can find it in the Google Play Store or in the iTunes Store, and you can follow along that way in the app. Um, so, uh, like I said, we're in the series called Unleashed, uh, and uh, this has been by far one of my favorite series I've ever done um, uh, preaching-wise. Uh, I've learned so much in my own studies uh, about how to do church uh, and the things that God really cares about in His church. And tonight, we are going to talk about this thing, unity, uh, that Jesus cares about deeply. Uh, when it comes to his church and how he wants us to be united. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight is unity. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 15, so let's get going. Uh, Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, as according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, uh, when he talks about coming down from Antioch, there was the city of Antioch in Syria, in modern-day Syria. It's on the border of Lebanon and Syria, the city of Antioch. It was a majorly important city. It's where the uh, believers in Jesus were first called Christians. And the, there were some people from Antioch, uh, I'm sorry, from people from Judea, which was the region around Jerusalem. And these people went from Judea to Antioch. Now, Judea is up on a mountain. It's up on the, the hills. And so when it says they went down to Antioch, they actually went north to Antioch, but they said going down because it was lower in elevation. So they go the 300 miles from Judea to Antioch in order to tell the people there, the believers there, the, specifically the Gentile believers, that they had to be circumcised, an outward sign of converting to Judaism. Uh, they had to be circumcised in order to become Christians. Uh, this was a huge threat to the first century church. Uh, these people were known as Judaizers. And Paul uh, um, uh, addresses them several times in his writings, including in the book of Galatians. The entire book of Galatians is almost about all about Judaizers. In the book of Philippians, he talks about it as well. And, and Paul says that uh, these mutilators of the flesh, these dogs, he calls them, uh, have nothing uh, but lies uh, for the Christians. 
And so for these Gentile Christians that were being told, you must be circumcised, unless, uh, and unless you are, you cannot be saved, this brings them into a huge battle with Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 2. It says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem is up on a mountain. Uh, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they're going to go see the church leaders in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders, and they're going to talk to them about this question, about uh, does someone have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian, in order to be saved? It's a very, very important question in the first century church. Uh, so uh, they uh, go from uh, Antioch to Jerusalem. Like I said, it's 300 miles away. They go from Antioch to Jerusalem in order to, uh, to uh, seek the wisdom of the elders and the apostles. Look at verse 5. So they get there. They tell everything that God has been doing. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so you can see that this uh, belief, this teaching is starting to gain some traction. There are people who are like, yeah, this is what they have to do. These are all Jewish believers in Jesus. These Jewish believers in Jesus were actually Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who were uh, committed and devoted and zealous for the law of Moses. And so um, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas are, are going to disagree with them. And in fact, uh, we're going to see Peter get up and start uh, talking about this uh, to the church, uh, to the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem. And so Peter gets up and he starts to talk about uh, whether or not they have to do this. Uh, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them. And he's talking about the Gentiles. He showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So Peter, who had the first experience with Gentiles coming to faith in Christ when he went to Cornelius' household, says, look, I was there. I told them the good news. The Holy Spirit came on them. They started speaking in tongues, and then they were baptized. But God showed that he accepted them and that he welcomed them into his family by faith, not by an outward sign of circumcision. And so Paul, uh, Peter says, you know, God accepted them. He did not discriminate against them. And then he asks a very important question. Look at verse 10. It says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so Peter's saying that why are we trying to make the Gentiles follow the, the law of Moses? We, who are Jews, have never been able to follow the law of Moses. So why are we trying to make the Gentiles do that when we couldn't do it ourselves? No, he says we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Period. Well, uh, Paul and Barnabas then get up 
And Barnabas and Paul start talking about the experiences they had as they traveled throughout the Mediterranean telling people about Jesus, specifically telling Gentiles about Jesus and all the signs and wonders that God had done through them uh, in order to uh, bring Gentiles to Jesus. And, and everyone's getting excited about the stories that are being told. They're, they're encouraged by them. And then one of the elders at the church of Jerusalem gets up to talk. Now, this is no ordinary elder, by the way. This is James, who wrote the book of James. Oh, and by the way, he had a very famous relative, and his name was Jesus. James was Jesus's brother, like Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Son of God. This is Jesus' brother, James, who gets up and addresses the group. Now, when James speaks, everyone stops and everyone starts to listen. Look at verse 19. It is my judgment, he says, therefore, this is so good, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. It is my judgment, therefore. That we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You know what that tells me? That means it is not our job to, to, to put up hoop after hoop after hoop for people to come to faith in Christ. That's not our job. We should not make it difficult for sinners who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for people who don't know Jesus yet. We should not make it difficult for them to come to know Jesus. We should remove every obstacle that we possibly can. We should do everything. Craig Rochelle is a pastor in Oklahoma. And he says we should do everything short of sin to bring people to God. We should do everything short of sinning. We're not going to sin to bring people to Jesus. But we will do everything short of sinning to bring people to Jesus Christ. And this is where he gets that, that's where he gets that from. This verse where he gets that from. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for people in Griffith, Indiana, or Highland, Indiana, or Cherville, or Gary, or East Chicago, or Hammond, or Dyer, or Munster, or Crown Point, or Lansing, or Valpo, or Portage, or anywhere around here. We should not make it difficult for anyone in our area to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We should tear down every wall, tear down every barrier, and do everything we can, short of sinning, to bring people to faith in Christ. Because that's what matters most. Is faith in Jesus. So James, the brother of Jesus, gets up. And he starts, you know, and he, and he tells them about his opinion. What he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for those, for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And then he says this. Instead, we should write to them. Telling them to abstain from four things. One, food polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And I read that and I go, what in the world is he talking about? Those four things? I mean, of everything you're going to tell the Gentiles to avoid, those are the four? What is he talking about? Why those four things? Why does he tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood? I'll tell you why. One word. One reason. One word that he tells them 
to tell the Gentiles to avoid these four things. Unity. And you're looking at me like I'm crazy. What are you talking about now? Unity is the reason he's told them to do that? Absolutely. You see, you have the Jews and the Gentiles coming together to form one church. But there are cultural differences. There are religious differences, ethnic differences, ceremonial differences. There's a lot of differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. And some of those differences were in worship. The Gentiles, who at one point were pagans and involved in pagan worship rituals, would not be united, would not be united or unified with the Jews who avoided those things. And guess what? Those four things that James says that they should avoid all have to do with pagan worship rituals that the Gentiles were participating in before they came to Christ. So food sacrifice to idols, that's a pagan thing. The Jews would not associate with people who ate food sacrificed to idols. It breaks up the unity of the church. Sexual immorality, I mean, in this instance, he's talking about the sexual immorality that took place in the pagan temples. He's talking about ritualistic temple prostitution. And he says, don't do that anymore. Avoid that kind of sexual immorality. Avoid all kinds of sexual immorality, really, but specifically regarding temple prostitution and pagan uh, sexual immorality when it came to worship. Food, uh, uh, meat that came from strangled animals, that's again, that's, that has to do with how they sacrificed animals in pagan temples. And blood, drinking the blood of animals was part of a pagan worship ritual. So he's not telling him, don't eat a medium rare ribeye. That's not what he's saying. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't. It's been a while. But you will know when I do. You will know. The glow will return to my cheeks. But so the reason that he tells them the reason that he tells them to avoid these four things is because these are four things, four activities that would have divided the Jews from the Gentiles. The Jews and Gentiles would not come together and worship together if the Gentiles were participating in these worship rituals. Does that make sense? So this whole chapter really is about one thing. It's about unity. I mean, there's other things that that come up about how to deal with conflict. One of the best ways to deal with conflict, what does James do? He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes the book of Amos. So they turn to God's word and they turn to the leaders who were led by God's spirit, the apostles and the elders. So you turn to your leaders and say, leaders who are led by the Holy Spirit, what do we do? We turn to God's word, say God's word is the truth. What do we do? And then we move based on what God's word says and what the leaders say who are led by God's Holy Spirit. So verse 22, look at this. It says, then the apostles and elders with the whole church, again, what does that mean? Unity. The apostles and the elders, the leaders of the church, and the whole church, including those guys who were in the Pharisees, the Christians who, who were Pharisees, they're the ones who, they agreed. Yeah, you know what? You're right. The whole church got together. They decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas. Now, I got to admit, 
If my name was Judas in the first century church, I want to be known as Barsabbas. <laughs> and they chose Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. And they wrote a letter to the Gentile Christians in Antioch, and they explained to them what it is that they were supposed to do. They were supposed to avoid these four things, these four activities. That's what they were called to do. Avoid these four activities. But as far as trying to obey the law of Moses in order to become a Christian, in order to become a follower of Jesus, that's not necessary. You don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. Okay? So that's what they do. They send these four guys, Paul and Barnabas, Barsabbas and uh, Silas. They send those four guys to Antioch and they take them this letter and, they, and they're so encouraged by the letter. They're so encouraged to hear from their brothers in Jerusalem. And so they spend some time there, and then uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to—they're going to go out and uh, strengthen the the believers that they had in the churches that they had planted before. But there's a problem. Do you guys remember a couple weeks ago, uh, 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 a young man by the name of Mark, John Mark? He was Barnabas's cousin, and I told you to put this in the back of your memory banks. I told you to put this in the back of your head, because if you remember, John Mark. Barnabas's cousin, Barnabas's relative, left Paul and Barnabas when they were out on their missionary journey, and he went away. This is a problem. So Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go visit the churches that we started and strengthen the believers. Barnabas wanted to, call, wanted to take John Mark along. Say, so, hey, let's, let's take my, my relative, let's take my cousin John Mark, and let's go visit these churches. And Paul said no. Look at verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. This whole chapter is about unity. And yet here you have two leaders in the church. The apostle Paul. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And now they've split up. They've parted company. There are some important lessons that we can learn about unity from this chapter. This is what you got to know, though. You must do everything you can to preserve the unity of the church. Now, I'm not saying go along with sin. I'm not saying go along with sinful activity. I'm not saying to go along with things that violate God's word. But I am saying this. You must do everything you can to preserve the unity of the church. What does that mean? Well, it means that you have to go above and beyond to bring about unity, to make sure that we are united. And, and here's why unity is so important. Did you know on the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed for you and me. He prayed for all believers that we would be one, that we would be united, that we would be unified. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, this is what it says. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be what? One. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world 
may believe that you have sent me. There is a purpose to unity in the church. We live in a world that is completely and totally divided. I don't know if any of you are on Facebook, but I know that some of you are. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not. The world is a little bit divided right now and will be for at least, oh, I don't know, forever. But we are a divided nation, a divided world, a divided state, a, a, a divided community. We can't be a divided church. We just can't be. Jesus prayed that we would be one so that people would know that God sent his son, Jesus. That's how the world's going to know that, that God sent Jesus was that we would be one and united just as he and the father are united. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that may, they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete what? Unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How do we show God's love to the world? It's in our united uh, church. It is when we are united. It is in our unity that we show the world that we belong to Jesus. That his love is true. Because his love takes totally different people. People who are at different places uh, theologically. Different places uh, Age-wise, different places uh, economically, different places physically. God takes us all, fills us with his love, and our love for one another makes us one. It unites us. Amen. And that's how the world knows that Jesus is real. Because those who don't believe in Jesus, those who don't have faith in God, those who don't have faith in Christ, those who are not filled with his love, are divided against everyone else. But love, what does love do? Love unites. So there's a couple things that we need to know. Preserving the unity of the church sometimes means making a sacrifice. Preserving the unity of the church sometimes means making a sacrifice. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There may be things about GFCC that you don't like. It's okay. To be honest, there are about things about GFCC that I don't like. Some of them. Those are my personal preferences. Some of my personal preferences are things that I don't like. But you know what? I'm willing to sacrifice those things, my personal preferences or my personal opinions. I'm willing to sacrifice those things to preserve the unity of the church. That sometimes I need to keep my mouth shut. And you're like, you need to do it more than sometimes. <laughs> but sometimes I need to keep my mouth shut. To preserve the unity of the church. Because the unity of the church is more important than my personal preference. It's true. The unity of the church is more important than my personal preferences. And I'm willing to sacrifice some of those personal preferences. I'm willing to sacrifice some of those things that I hold that, that are really important to me. But may not be important to Jesus. I'm willing to sacrifice those to preserve the unity of the church. And we all got to do that. Secondly, preserving the unity of the church sometimes means parting company. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. Now, I'm not kicking anybody out tonight. Tonight. And I don't want anybody to go anywhere. I want everybody to love my church. I want everybody to love GFCC. But I know this. I've learned this. In 23 years of preaching, not every church is for everybody. Not every church is for everybody. And so GFCC may not be the church for you. It may not be the church for you watching online. 
And that's okay. There's lots of Christian churches. Lots of them. Sometimes it means you've got to part company. And I'm not talking like, and, and sometimes it, it's over personal preference stuff, but sometimes it's over serious theological issues. And we've got to say, you know what, I, can, uh, I, I don't know that I can go on the journey anymore with GFCC, and that, that's okay. You, you can go, but go peacefully, go amicably. Don't raise a ruckus on your way out and tear the unity of the church apart. That's not your job. Preserving the unity of the church sometimes means parting company. And that's hard, and it hurts. Believe me, I know. Lastly, preserving the unity of the church always means loving one another. Preserving the unity of the church always means loving one another. Everything we do has to be grounded in the love of Jesus. Everything we do has to be grounded in the love of God. Our unity stems from the love of God. Our unity comes from the love of Jesus. And that love of God, that love of Jesus is in us, and we have to share it with one another. If we want to be a united church, if we want to be a united family, we have to love one another. And unconditional love is not easy. It's, it's hard. Yes, it is. But this is what Jesus prayed for. He prayed that we would be united, whether watching virtually online or being here in the worship center, coming together six months from now, a year from now, whenever we all get back together, we have to fight for unity in love.